You are listening to the Logos broadcast with Fergus James Murphy. So George Hook is with me today. We are live. It's eight o'clock in Ireland. And George, I'm in Florida. And if you don't mind, I'd like to ask you, because uh, it's current, what do you make of what's going on uh, in America at the moment? Well, uh, well, the first thing I say is, if, if the Americans every day in their newspapers criticize the Irish political system and the Irish leaders, we would be appalled. Yet we have absolutely no problem criticizing the former US president uh, or any other US president and telling them how, how dreadful they are and what an awful people they are. We have no right to do that. Donald Trump was elected by the Irish people. The American people. Oh, sorry, by the American yeah. people. Then we suddenly say, ah, yeah, but Hillary won the popular vote. What's mm. the popular vote got to do with it? The system is the Electoral College, not mm. their system. We can't criticize them for their system. So I think we have an awful cheek. Uh, the second thing is that our entire media uh, sort of lives in Boston, New York, and Washington, D.C., with the odd visit uh, to San Francisco and Los Angeles. And then this entire country in between, they ignore. They've never been there. They've never talked to anybody there. I remember I criticized the Irish Times journalist, Duna Mullally, ferociously for not, you know, talking to um, others emerged. She said, of course I did. And then she listed about six states she had visited, all on the eastern seaboard. Yes. You know, if you haven't been to uh, Green Bay, Wisconsin, if you haven't been to Lawrence, Kansas, if you haven't been to Dubuque, Iowa, if you haven't been to Birmingham, Alabama, if you haven't been to Baton Rouge, you know, then yeah. you know nothing about America. I have. Yes. And, and there are only two states in the entire America that I have visited, North and South Dakota. Wow. Been to Hawaii and I've been to Alaska and I've been to all the others to boot. So therefore, a, a, because nobody ever accused me of being modest, <laughs> I will say that I know as much about America as any Irish journalist before or since. Wow. So why, what had you in America and what kind of things were you doing that, uh, apart from coaching rugby, but what, yeah, what was your connection to, to the land and that extensive travels that you obviously did? Well, the first thing is I'm a passionate believer in career guidance for school children because I didn't get any career guidance. Okay. Although my father did tell me I should become, and my mother told me I should become an accountant. The last thing I should have been was an accountant, so I failed at accountancy. Then I tried to set up my own business. I was brilliantly successful at selling stuff, but I couldn't keep money. Money had an inability to slip through my fingers. So for 25 or 30 years, I, I lost money running a business, which I kept alive by borrowing, by robbing Peter to pay Paul and okay. so on. And that drove me to going to the end of Dunleary Pier one dark night and taking my clothes off and preparing to dive in. I still don't know why I didn't, but I got to that point. So uh, then here I am in, in sort of uh, 
1991 or so, and I had coached the Americans in the 87 World Cup in Australia because I had made a connection with the, the American coach at that time through video. I mean, 1987 video is pretty simple, but anyway. But he then rang me in about 91 and he said, look, we're looking for a head guy to run American coaching and rugby generally. Do you know anybody? And I said, absolutely me. And he said, that'd be great. And he, he said, it's only one problem. We have no money. So I said, well, I'm used to working without any money. But I said, what I'll do is I'll get a sponsor to pay for me. And I, I had a rough idea who the sponsor was. I duly got him. He sponsored me. And then for five years, I ran American rugby from a technical point of view, not from, a, not from an administrative point of view. I was national technical director. So for five years, every single weekend, I was in a different city. So like I, I, I defy somebody, you know, to give me a city in America and I've been in it. Wow. Okay. So because I was running coaching courses. So I got to know America extraordinarily well, but a country I love, a country I've always loved since somebody first explained Omaha Beach to me. From the moment somebody explained young GIs dying on a beach in Normandy, I was an American lover. So how did lovely Ingrid handle all of this moving around and all the setbacks and all the failures and all that? It must have been a strain or, or, or what? How, how did that all work? You've asked that question very politely, um, whereas in fact you were looking at um, the holder of the world's worst husband of the year award for 20 consecutive years. So let me tell you about this husband, right? This guy marries this beautiful German girl, um, although I met her in Britain. I bring her back to Ireland. She doesn't know anybody, nobody except a few people who are at our wedding. And, and I bring her home. And then she suddenly discovers this guy, first of all, is a rugby lunatic and he's missing most of the time. He's then got a business so we can't pay the bills and, and she works. And she was a, a pharmacist and, and uh, she eventually finished up in Trinity and so on as a lecturer. So she's suddenly paying the bills and this guy's knocking at the door saying, your husband owes me money, you know? And she did that and then I don't know how she did it, see, because I wasn't there. So how did she go to the supermarket on Thursday, buy all the food, and then at Easter time, you know, get the stuff for the Easter bunny for the kids? How did she do it? I had no idea. I wasn't there, right? I was missing, right? So that's the first thing. That's the first sort of 20 years of our marriage, right? But at least I was in Ireland. Now in 1991, disappeared to America. I abandoned my wife and children. Now she had every reason, you know, to bring up her lawyer. I don't think she expected me back, to be honest, right? Now the deal I had with the Americans was to spend roughly six months in America and six months in Ireland. So, you know, because obviously summertime in America, there wasn't rugby going on and so on. So I wasn't exactly gone. Right, but I was missing. Right? She didn't know whether 
I had another, you know, I was a bigamist in America. You know, she didn't know what the hell. And she was still paying all the bills. She was still surviving. For some extraordinary reason, she held this marriage together. For some unbelievable reason. And as you and I speak, um, we are approaching uh, over 50 years of marriage, 52 years of marriage. Congratulations, George. Right? All her credit. Wow. Extraordinary, this woman. Now, all countries and all nations and all peoples have national characteristics. I think it's fair that it might be unfair to my fellow Irish men, but Irish men are a bit sort of, <laughs> you know, irresponsible periodically. <laughs> Whereas Germans are correct, dedicated, conscientious, work ethic, all those sort of good things. So she demonstrated all that in spades. Wow. But the extraordinary thing, and this is really extraordinary, I have an extraordinary, amazing relationship with my children. Mm -hmm. Now, you would think this guy is a complete waster. He can't pay his bills. He does all this thing. But for some reason, and I actually don't know how I did it, I had a great relationship with my children. I remember my youngest girl, Alison, who's a banker in London now. Alison said, well, Pop, she said, you know, when we'd have a school play or something, Mum would be in the front row 20 minutes before the start with Granny, and they'd be sitting there ready to go. And then with about 60 seconds to curtain up, you would arrive, hurtle through the door, and we knew you'd taken one plane, two trains, three taxis to get there. Yes. And we appreciated that. So she said, really, Pop, the situation was, most of the time we went to mom and said, what do we do? But if the manure hit the fan, we went to you. So wow. somehow I got that relationship, you know, and here I am today with, with three children, with nine grandchildren. I have all that. And I just think I'm the luckiest guy mm. in the world. And it's luck. I mean, there's no, there's no plan here. I didn't do anything. I mean, when I, when I finally got a real job in 1995, age 54, my first real job, the first yes. time I actually got a paycheck on a Friday, okay, uh, I was looking at probably living in a caravan somewhere, you know, divorced, uh, you know, probably a wino, you know, I mean, that's what I was looking at. And then because, and I, I have to say I had talent. I mean, I'm not going yes. to, you know, I'm not modest. I know right? what you mean, though. You're, you're frank. Yeah, yeah. I suddenly discovered what I was good at. I was good at talking. Well, everyone knew I was good at talking. So now I'm on television, I'm on radio, and I start making money. Unbelievably. I'm in credit with the Bank of Ireland, right? Now, lucky for me, the Bank of Ireland uh, computers don't go back far enough, and they re don't realise I'm an absolute ne'er-do-well, okay? So they're sending me platinum credit cards and all sorts of stuff, but I actually have money, and I have a pension. So here I am, 79 years of age, and I have a pension. And I'm living at home with this wonderful woman. Mm -hmm. I never believed it possible. And it happened. And this is really where young people have to, or anybody of any age, like 
I didn't learn until I was 54. So it's not the end of the world when you're 24, 34 or 44. The important thing is to be doing what you want to do. When you said you didn't learn until 54, what, what do you mean? Well, I didn't learn what I was good at. Yes, yeah, yeah. I didn't, like, I mean, I never thought of writing a letter to RT and saying, hello, can I have an interview? I just mm-hmm. never thought of that. I could never imagine that I'd be able to do that. Mm-hmm. Like, my self-esteem, it's really interesting. Like, if you're failing all the time, if you can't pay bills, if you can't be a husband, you know, your self-esteem is destroyed and, and you just think you're useless. And then suddenly I get this job, right? And guess how much they're paying me? Guess how much they're paying me? 25 pounds a go, right? <laughs> or to our American friends, $30. So I'm on television to rugby for 30 bucks, right? Yeah. But and here's the crucial thing. Ingrid saw a check for 30 bucks coming in the post. For the first time ever, she had a husband who was earning money. 30 bucks, but it was earning as opposed to losing. Okay? I get you. And then the Irish Independent rang me. I'd done a couple of television shows. And the guy in the Irish, it was really interesting. Ingrid rings me. Now I'm preparer, right? So I, I'm, I'm normally an RTE when in those days, like three hours before kickoff, you know. Well, all that. So she rings me and she says, there's some guy looking for you urgently, but I can't pronounce his name, right? So then she gives me a number. So I ring up and this guy answers, I know no Sulu on, mm-hmm. right? Bit of a mouthful for a German, you know? So I said, how are you? George here. Oh, he said, brilliant. He said, I watched you on television last week. I know you're on television today. Would you do a piece for us tomorrow for the Sunday? I said, sure, yeah. He said, well, look, as soon as the match is over, I'll get a guy to ring you and you talk to him and then he'll write it. Oh, no, 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 I said. I'll write it. And I always remember he said to me, because we became great friends, he said, uh, can you do that? And I always remember I said, I went to school, didn't I? (laughs) So he said 500 words. So when it was over, I went to a desk and I got a pen and I got paper and I wrote 500 words and I counted them. And this is the old days, like this is... Before Microsoft Word kind of thing, was it? Oh yeah, this is pre-Microsoft Word. This is 1995. And then I call it down the line because somebody at the other end in the Indo with a typewriter is taking it. And I call it down the line. And I had an extraordinary relationship with the independent. In all the time I wrote for them, over 20 years, I never had a contract. Hmm. And I know Sullivan, who was the sports editor, in, in, in the first week of the year, he would meet me in a coffee shop in Black Rock. And um, we'd have a coffee. And then he would take a bit of paper out of his pocket, a grubby piece of paper, and he would hand it to me, right? And he would say, that's what I'm going to pay you per article this year. And I'd look at that, and it would be a number, and I'd say, fine. I'll take that. that. A relationship. I, you'd be delighted to hear, sir, that after 20 years, they were paying me more than 25 quid ago. Hmm. Well, I think it was worth it. I think you've contributed uh, quite a lot. But look, um, you have said that you're no longer a proud member of the Fourth Estate. I saw you make a very compelling case 
on a, a show called the Irish Inquiry or the Irish Inquirer. Yeah. And I just found that kind of little phrase interesting. So do you mind me asking you about that? And how do you feel uh, that now that you're outside of this kind of world of, of the Irish mainstream, is that something that you embraced uh, with, let's say, excitement and, and freedom or something like that? Or, or was this, do you feel like you're, you're kind of left out? Or Do you know, how, how do you feel about all that? Well, I think it's very important here am I on YouTube with you. And then in the next breath, I'm saying I'm not interested in making a comeback, you know? I mean, I'm not interested in making a comeback. I'm doing this for you and I've done stuff for other people because I like the people who ring me up and say, will you do it? Um, you're not even paying me £25 to go, which is quite right. If I could, George, I'd pay a lot more than that, but yeah. <laughs> which is quite disappointing. So um, there is a, what has happened in Irish media is really very interesting in that everybody now who holds a sort of contrary view to the mainstream is fired. So you can go back, you can go to uh, Kevin Myers at the, at the, on, on the Sunday Times, me. Now, was I right to be fired? I don't know. I don't care, really. Because I clumsily said something that I actually had. So many people thought what I had to say was valid, but I said it badly. So was that a mistake? Yes. Should you be punished for your mistake if you live by the sword? Should you die by the sword? Yes. Right? But I remember talking to Kevin Myers because he was sacked before me. And I, I remember saying to him, like, how did you feel? And he said, well, I had about 15 cases for libel. And, and I said, well, why don't you pursue them, you know? Mm -hmm. And he said, well, you know, I would have just kept the whole thing going and I didn't want to. And then when it happened to me, I had 15 cases for libel yes. and I didn't pursue them. It was extraordinary. Like uh, a member of the Irish Parliament went on the Sean O'Rourke show and um, she said, this was at the height of that, the furore, she said, Hook has form, she hissed. He plies women with drink and has his way with them. Right. Now, a member that? of parliament, a, a, a TD. TD. Good no, grief. Just let me, just let me segue slightly. No, keep, At the please. 2020 general election, as is my wont, I am watching the results. And lo and behold, the female TD does not get elected. I cracked a bottle of champagne. But here's the interesting thing. I wrote a book. And I humorously in the book talked about being in England as an Irish Catholic virgin, right? And I met this woman in Northampton who wore eyeshadow and Brother Athanasius in Presentation College had warned me about girls who wore eyeshadow. What George, did he say about them, George? Yeah. <laughs> what, what was the warning? Oh, dodgy. But also like women who drank gin and tonic, right? Yes. So she also drinks gin and tonic. I don't even drink, right? So now she's passed to incredible hurdles for this virgin, right? She drinks and she has eyeshadow. So I'm made up here. I mean, this is, this is my big chance. And then she says, do you want to come back to my apartment? And this is in my book. So I go back to her apartment 
And then the punchline in the book is, I arrived in her apartment as an Irish Catholic virgin, and I left her apartment as an Irish Catholic virgin, yes. right? Okay. But the the good old Irish TD had used that. Wow. On radio to say, you know, that he, he did. And then, like, so there was this pandemonium. So anyway, I essentially get sacked, right? Although, to be fair, to news talk and the board and everything, they were essentially supportive. But in the face of advertisers are saying, we're not going to advertise. Because it was just, like, it was a witch hunt. So I wanted to go on then. I wanted do, uh, you know, podcasts and webcasts. And I wanted to show the world, you know, that Hook was here. Yes, know? yes. And then I, I'm invited to three lunches. Daughter number one, son number one, daughter number two. And they all say the same thing. If you go back in the limelight, we'll never speak to you again, right? Now, why did they do that, you may ask, okay? Well, the weekend after the thing had blown up, we were besieged in our house. Besieged. There were probably 30, 40 journalists outside our front door. Cameramen. They knocked, because I was watching telly, they knocked on my window, they knocked on my door, they pushed uh, messages through my letterbox, they sent me text messages um, and besieged us. And my daughter was in the house and she was unbelievably upset. Ingrid takes this, these things better than I do, but nevertheless, they were deeply upset. Letters started to arrive in, in the following weeks and months. Anonymous letters started to arrive, not to me, but to my wife and my children. Which is worse, isn't it? Oh, of course, because I don't give an SH1T, you know. I'm fine with this. I can take this. But they can't, and they shouldn't take it. I mean, Inglewood, you know, receives a letter which says, you know, it's a shame his mother didn't abort him, you know, that, that he was around to marry you. She received a mail with a used condom in it. Um, my children received stuff. So you can understand why they took me out to lunch, you know? They don't need that or want that. So I'm quite conscious about doing stuff, you know? I and, get you. Yes. And I'm doing this for you because I trust you. And, and putting I, the head above the parapet kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I'm good with it. But now the interesting thing is I am utterly relaxed about it. You know, I'm fine with it. I'm done. I'm in a place where I never thought I would be. I am so happy at home, married to this amazing woman, great kids, great grandchildren. I have a pension, which I never thought I would have. So I'm fine. I'm so, absolutely fine. On a day-to-day -day basis, what what has George Hook been doing since uh, th those fateful days and the end of 2017, I believe, that that all happened? Yeah. And you're clearly... And I don't mean to say this in any kind of patronizing way. You are very, very sharp for a man of 79. I think you'll accept me saying that. Yeah. So, and, and I also read that you had in an article uh, about you that you were worried about dementia. And this was when you were 72. So yeah. seven years later, <laughs> you haven't fallen foul of these kind of things. Do you know? So 
How do you keep yourself in, in check in that kind of way? Well, there are two things, really. And you've got to think about pre-COVID, uh, you know, and COVID. And COVID is essentially St. Patrick's Day, March the 17th to the uninitiated, when this whole thing broke up and we were shut down. And they actually told us, and then later they said they only advised us, but they actually told us, if you're over 70, you don't step outside your front door. So I didn't step, we didn't step outside our front door for three months. Okay, the wonderful local guy, news agent, stroke, uh, grocery, used to deliver the stuff to our doorstep and so on. And I have survived COVID. Um, the odd bits when I've been out and got the odd golf, but a lot of it I've been in the house. Uh, to an interesting combination, which I don't recommend. I'm not recommending this to survive COVID, but it is my methodology, all right? which is 14 hours of Netflix, three large gin and tonics, and half to three quarters of a bottle of New Zealand Sauvignon Blanc. And I find that COVID holds no fears. So that's how you keep yourself going, I suppose. But there is an interesting point, if you don't mind me saying. Go, yeah. Now, I've already told you about this marriage of mine when I'm missing and bills and everything else. I have not missed dinner at home, for obvious reasons, since March the 17th. So what? I've, I've had about 300 dinners at home. Mm -hmm. So I know there are major mental problems caused by COVID. There are domestic abuse issues caused by COVID. But for me, I've discovered marriage at 79 wow. england and i are actually great company you know mm. what i mean no like, it's yes right because we're together every single day now it's a shame i didn't discover that 52 years ago i know what you mean but better late than never but again it's george it's a recurring it's you could say it's a recurring uh instance of the phenomenon where you came late to the game with the whole broadcasting thing you realized the merits or whatever the joys of marriage maybe later than you would like to have done and i want to bring up something a bit different but maybe continuing a similar theme and it is that i think i was in fifth or sixth year but i used to find any excuse not to study and do my homework and there was a talk in glasthill uh, catholic church uh, given by Michael McGinney, I think the fella who the son-in-law of Mickey Hart and there was this series that they were doing and you were uh, part of the same series and I didn't hear you talk but what I want to ask you about is your journey uh, in and out of Catholicism you kind of joked about being a, a, a Catholic virgin in London and then I had read that you kind of didn't take all that stuff too seriously and then in in later years you've have you returned to to that faith that you're brought up with or, or how how has that what's the role of that in your life and what role do you play do you think in in that kind of uh, mechanism you speak about the glass tool thing it was um uh, an evening at the abbey it was called because the church was opposite presentation exactly. college glass tool That's and i'm a presentation college cork boy yes. so brother andrew rang me up and said, well, to speak at it, okay? Yes. And essentially I talked about, in a way I've never been away, 
you know, from Catholicism. But if you, like I was born in 1941, so it's very hard for people to understand that in 1940, in the 40s and 50s, Ireland was 99% white, Catholic, and church-going, okay? And the only black people we ever saw was when the African missions down in Black Rock had the odd fella come over to visit from Africa, and we thought they were Americans. And yes. we used to go up to them and say, have you had any chewing gum? <laughs> but anyway, to cut to the chase. So that was pretty basic stuff, right? Religion was pretty basic. Uh, confessional on Saturday night, church on Sunday morning, and communion. You could only, if you, to receive, you had to go to Mass before 10, right? John Paul II was a long way away. There was no Saturday night Mass, okay? And obviously, really, you know, as kids, we only had one sin to confess, you know? And that was what we did when we were by ourselves at home in bed, right? And the big problem is when I went to see... Um, we go to confession and the nearest church to me was the Capuchin church. And I go to the Capuchins and any man that starts shouting at me and I'm in wow. the box, right? Not just me, shouting at all your children. No, me. I know, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, you're going to produce deformed children. You know, you're going, your you're, uh, parts of you are going to drop off and blah, 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 right? Just terrifying stuff, right? So. And then you'd walk out, and all the old tears would be sitting outside, and they'd heard all this, right? So, uh, so anyway, um, there's a wonderful church in Cork called St. Mary's Pope's Key, and it's a Dominican church. And I'm not sure why I was down that neck of the woods one particular Saturday night, but it was. And I go in, and there's a box, and it's Father Alphonsus Moran O.P., Order of Preachers, Dominican. So I go in, you know, how are you, Father? 179 times last week, you know? And he said, that's quite all right. Wow. That's part of growing up. That's what young happens to young men. Now, I think we could cut down on 179, but don't worry about it. Three Hail Marys, okay? So now I'm back in prayers on Monday at school, lads, there's a fella in St. Mary's Bosque who's okay with what we do. So forever after, there's queues outside Father Morton's box of teenage boys all confessing the same sin, right? Now, we laugh at that. Yes. But a good friend of mine, his wife presented him with a baby who was damaged at birth. He needed psychiatric help. He was utterly convinced that what he had done as a school kid on his own had been the cause of the damage to his child. You know, so although it's funny, um, you know, we were brought up in, in pretty strict stuff. Then I went to London because I couldn't afford to go to university. So um, I worked to get money to go to university. And I went to university at 21 when mature students were pretty rare. And like I'd be going to mass every Sunday in London, you know. And then I was working for an insurance company in Trafalgar Square. And I remember it's Ash Wednesday. And I come in with Ash on my forehead to work. And all these good English people are saying, George. Do you realize there's dirt on your forehead, right? So you you, you believed, like, 
you know, and you believed if you didn't go to mass, all hell was going to break loose or whatever. Um, you were still a virgin, you know, so sex was still an unbelievable mystery to you. Um, and uh, the, the, so that was the first phase, if you like, of Catholicism. And did you, do you want me to just ask, and I know obviously these are personal things and you're, you're being very open and I very much appreciate that, but would you have resisted that um, restriction, let's say, that you felt you, you had to abide by when you were 20 and, and 19? Or were you saying, okay, this is, this is, this is the way it is and, and I'm okay with that? Well, uh, brainwashing has, has a pretty negative uh, reputation now. But like we were essentially brainwashed, but we were brainwashed by the Presentation Brothers, who I have enormous regard for. I wouldn't be talking to you without the education the Presentation Brothers gave me. But Catholicism was a very, very strict business, and it was a very simple business. Here are Ten Commandments, you abide by them. You go to Mass on Sunday. If you don't go to Mass on Sunday, it's a monster sin, right? If you if you do different things with girls, you know, they're monster sins as well, you know, and so on. Now, funny enough, they never kind of told us if you murder somebody, it's bad news, you know, or if you rob a bank. They were much more interested in what we might be doing with girls. But anyway, then you 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 kind of fall away because in my case there's the enormous pressure of work I married a non-Catholic um, then you're trying to bring up kids you're doing all this stuff and suddenly you're drifting away in my case in my head I never went away what I went away from was going to mass and going to confession and all that sort of stuff. But for my entire life, I've ended a discussion with somebody by saying, God bless, or I've prayed for people, or... And then there's another thing, which is very important. I adored my parents. I mean, I adored them. Only child, my parents, poor, left school of 14. Somehow they managed to send me to a fee-paying school. I was pretty well the only person in the area who did the leave insert. If I wasn't the only fellow who did the leave insert, I was certainly the only fellow who went to a fee-paying school, right? Um, and I treated them appallingly in latter life, you know, because I was too busy. I mean, my life was falling apart and instead of looking after my parents, I was worrying about myself. So, and my mother never saw me successful. You know, she adored me and she overlooked all my weaknesses. I want to go to heaven and say, Ma, I made it, you know. Now, I know that comes from a Jimmy Cagney movie, but it is actually true. I want to meet her in heaven and say, Ma'am, you know, I, I delivered for you. I really did it. And then my father, who, <clears throat> my father never read a book of fiction in his life. There's a fellow who left school at 14 and he would take me to the Cork City Library. Like my parents were educated by the Cork City Library and he would take me to the Cork City Library and I turned left for the children's department and I, he turned right for the adult department. And then we'd meet in 40 minutes when we had our book. Mm. And then I have this memory of the kitchen. Like remember, this is a two up, two down, terraced house, no running water, outside toilet. Right, running water is a tap in the yard. Okay, so I have this memory of sitting in the kitchen, 
there wouldn't be a sound, right? Three people reading books, okay? Wow. And, and I grew up with that. And then the other thing which really saved my bacon was we listened to the radio. You see, most people now, their, their understanding of broadcasting is television. And they think radio is just television without a picture. Radio is a totally different medium. Now, you got to remember, I grew up with that. I grew up with the BBC. I grew up with the great BBC comedy. But I was doing my homework, though. The Goon Show, Hancock's Half Hour, Raise a Laugh. You know, I'd be doing that. Um, so I learned all that. Listening to Terry Wogan in the morning, the way the way he presented that musical stuff, you know, and, and everything. So I learned. I, there was a fellow called Jimmy Young who came on after Wogan. Right, and Jimmy Young, interestingly, was it was a singer in his original life, and he had two number ones in the British hit parade. And then he became a, a broadcaster. He was unbelievably successful, and I copied Jimmy Young. Mm -hmm. I copied. I, I remember saying when I started, you know, everything I do here, I've stolen from somebody. Yes, and it was true. I stole it from somebody, you know, and and I always remember um, Jimmy Young. Uh, used to have a, this fella and he used to come in the morning and, and he'd say, morning, Tone, how are you? And your man would say, morning, Jim. And he used to talk about vegetables, right? So we talked about vegetables for 10 minutes and your man would sort of say, you know, well, there's uh, mushrooms at the moment in Tesco's are really good value at two and sixpence a pound or whatever it was. And I thought, you know, the idea of having somebody that you talk to is a really good idea. So I brought in a film guy and I brought in a travel guy. and But it was all stuff that I got from... I didn't see a television picture really until I was 21. Okay. So, like, radio was my gig, really. Yes. And you, you were learning things that you applied at 55, but that you didn't realize you'd be using until you were at that age, you know? So I'm, I'm curious, what kind of things, is there one standout thing that life taught you up to your broadcasting, before your broadcasting, that other people who are, let's say, a lifelong broadcaster or journalist or whatever, that they might have missed out on or something like that? Well, when Terry Wogan retired from the radio, he thanked the one person who listened to him. Right. And I'd heard this before. And so when I started, I started broadcasting to one and to the very until I ended, I was only speaking to one person. I didn't know gender of this person, but I had a rough idea because I was in drive time. I had a rough idea they were in a motor car and they were heading home. There's a big difference between going to work in the morning because you've been asleep, so you don't know what's going on. So now you want somebody to tell you, you know, this is what's happened while you were asleep. At drive time, you're heading home, you're relaxed, work is over. You now want somebody to sort of take you home. And I always had this idea that I was taking this person home, you know? And that was the thing I, I learned. And, and also, like, all the old musical comedians well let me explain musical <laughs> musical was like variety in theaters before there was television or radio and all this sort of thing and 
these comedians would, because they were going around the country all the time, they never changed their act. They were telling the same jokes, but they were in Glasgow this week and Manchester next week or whatever, so nobody had heard jokes before. But the staple joke was the mother-in-law joke. And the mother-in-law joke also maybe referred to her indoors. So a lot of comedians would talk about her indoors, the wife, you know, a fellow called Les Dawson, who was a great comedian. He always used to talk about his wife. Nobody ever saw his wife or anything. So I didn't invent the lovely Ingrid, but every program I would talk about the lovely Ingrid. Now, I swear to God, I adored her and was like at her side every night of the week, which is far from the truth. But I, 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 I stole that. I stole that from musical comedians, the idea of this woman, nobody, and to this very day, well, not so much day now, but when we'd go out, you know, we'd be in a restaurant, mm -hmm. somebody would come over and say, oh, this must be the lovely Ingrid. Oh, yes, you know? yes, yes. So no, I, that's lovely. I, that's, I, it's this word osmosis, you know, which probably most people know. I learned radio by osmosis. Yes. I learned all this stuff from them. All yes. those great broadcasters, you know. So you have again. I know you're you're kind of you don't want to bring unnecessary attention to your family and yourself, and you don't want to. I'm okay. Piss, whatever you know, but but still, I you're not coming out necessarily all guns blazing. But it would be uh, ignoring the elephant in the room if I was not to ask you about your recent contributions to public discussion on the virus. And although you have made peace with what you do every day, you're kind of aware of, let's say, um, the unintended consequences of, of what is happening. So can you talk to me a bit about what you see uh, is happening in Ireland right now and obviously across much of the world, you know, but, but Ireland would be where you're most familiar with. Of course. Um Funny enough, I've, I've already said, you know, I don't want to go back on radio or anything and I don't want to, but I'm, I was talking to one of my golfing buddies recently before the golf shut down and I said to him, I've never wanted to be on the radio as much as I do now, right? Because there is no discourse. There is no discourse. Nobody is prepared, anybody who does ask, the difficult question just gets chopped off at the knees. And what we have at the moment, I have two very interesting heroes who probably wouldn't talk to each other if I invited them to dinner. One would be Michael Collins and the other would be Winston Churchill. <laughs> but Winston Churchill famously said, there's all these different ways of governing a country. Democracy isn't great, but it's the best we've got, or words to that effect. So we're a democracy, barely 100 years old, not even 100 years old. And we're a democracy. We elect people. And there's a thing called the franchise where you go in and you put a pencil in a space and all that. And that's extraordinary. You know, it's, it's an incredible thing. You mean the voting, the way it works? Yes. Yes. And the that's counting true. is what I'm intrigued by, the way. The well, counting is well, beautiful. We, we have a democracy. And if we went to Belarus or other countries and we said, listen, we have a democracy, we can vote for who we like, they'd be looking at us and saying, you can't be serious, right? 
Well, look at what's happened in Poland and Hungary, literally as we speak, changes in democracy, okay? So, we are now governed, in my view, by an unelected civil servant, the chief medical officer, Dr. Hulan. Because he, he makes pronouncements and the government until just literally very recently, for the first time, the government actually said, well, no, we're going to do something different. But he has, he has run the country and he has run the country, in my view, into the ground. With country the support, I- it must be granted in fairness to her, look, whatever about the merits of what he's saying, he no, hasn't. My he, I know, I know, I know, I know. But just to say, he's kind of egged on, it seems, by by the the discussion or lack thereof in Ireland. Do you know which is another feature? But anyway, go on. Sorry to cut oh, across you. But no, I think he's now a celeb. You know, now usually celebs were like Ryan Tuberty or you know. God forgive him, poor old Terry Wogan or whatever. That's what celebs were, you know, yes, they were yes. stars or whatever. He's now a celeb, right? He's on the telly every day, okay? And about a year ago, there were all these guys in dusty laboratories, right? Lecturing a few students. Nobody heard of them, right? They are now all celebs. You cannot have a radio or television program without the professor of epidemiology or immunology or something else. You can't have a break. It's not possible to have break. So this guy comes on, this professor comes on. Nobody heard of him until nine months ago. He's now, he's now, this guy, he probably got a book to be published. He's on the telly every week. We hang on his every word. And he says, this is the position. And everybody says, certainly, whatever you yes, say. Sir. We, yes, sir. No, sir. So, last March, guy comes out. Hello, I'm professor of you know what. Do you realize 80,000 people are going to die in Ireland? Do you realize that our hospitals are going to be overrun? Our ICUs are going to be packed with dying people. He didn't quite say, but he almost did. You know, there'll be people on the pavement dying in front of our very eyes. Yeah. Oh, it didn't happen. Why didn't it happen? It, did it happen because Tony Holland, the saviour of the modern world, came along and locked us all up and said, for the first time since the penal laws, you can't go to church. Mm-hmm. You can't visit your children. Your family are actually dangerous. Your family are your enemy. Your family aren't your friend. They're dangerous because they might infect you. Is that the reason? And there were, it's worse because you might infect them. So it's not only I'm, I'm risking myself, but there's this whole thing. Oh, well, I could be killing my granny. Do you know what I mean? It's, it's not only that you take, do you know? So that's where, how they get you, I suppose. Or that's where my the, the fear. My children have said that to me, my, particularly in the early part. And increasingly people, I think, are beginning to question. Although in the latest opinion poll, uh, Tony Houlihan is currently out polling St. Francis of Assisi. Yes. Um, but like uh, the, the thing is that if you look at all the numbers, if at one point there was a thousand people a day, 
been infected. So I have seven days, I have 7,000. So you'd expect it'd be a ton of people in hospital, but there wasn't a ton of people in hospital. There wasn't a ton of people in ICU, probably as we speak, three or 400 people in hospital, 30 or 40 people in ICU, probably. Where's the overrun? Like if you if you think that we, we, we did an unbelievably expensive deal with all the private hospitals. And we said to the private hospitals, you know the people aren't entitled to go to you because they haven't got insurance in areas. Well, like you'll have to take them now to bail us out. Then they went out to City West, where there's this huge place, and they said, listen, we're going to turn this into a hospital. Neither of those places have had a patient. So, like, if somebody is wrong, if you were an economist or you were a political analyst or god forbid you were a rugby pundit you know and you said Ireland are going to beat the all blacks by 50 points next saturday and then they didn't you know there'd be questions in parliament but these so-called experts can turn around and say this is going to happen. It hasn't happened. But what they are not telling us, and this is why it is wrong, what they are not telling us is the damage. We know 300,000 cancer checks have not happened this year. So therefore we know that there's going to be people die of cancer who might not have died of cancer. We know that. We know that people have died by suicide who might not have died by suicide. We know that people have, families have been abused, who might not otherwise have been abused, but for this. And above all, we know that the economy is finished. Maybe not to recover, maybe not to recover. How, like, how can we, we can fix it. No, we can fix it. There's absolutely no doubt we can fix it. If we all stay at home, None of us go to work and we live by gaslight and we don't have any electricity and we don't have any cookers and everything. And we live by gaslight and, you know, we keep pigs in the back garden and chickens and we live. We probably will be at zero COVID that these guys are so fond of saying. Yes. But we, you, you, you cannot live without an economy. You might like capitalism, but it's the way we survive. And George, how do you think this is going to be compared to, say, 2008 or other other economic downturns you want to witness, say, in the, the 1980s and things like that? Is there any, have, have we had the time yet to establish the, the magnitude of this? Well, <clears throat> like, or are we just going to be guessing? Like, are we going to be making these projections? Do you know a little bit like maybe the virus projections, which the whole thing weren't accurate? Good. Correct. It's all guesswork. But but we do know this, though. I'm glad you mentioned 08, right? Or any previous time. Okay? If you go back all the way to the 1928 Depression, okay? Never in the history of the world have governments borrowed so much money. Now, the theory is this money is cheap, so we can borrow it. Okay? But my mother... And everybody else's mother knows that if you borrow money, you have to pay it back, okay? Might be a lot of interest, but you have to pay it back. So we're going to have to pay it back. How do you pay it back? How does a, how does a country pay it back? They pay it back by taxes. So therefore, as night follows day, 
taxes must increase. I'm no economist. I'm no accountant. It's basic stuff, but, yeah. But I can do arithmetic. Yes. So when Sinn Féin say, and Sinn Féin are going to be the next government, the next Taoiseach is going to be Mary Lou MacDonald, when Sinn Féin are in power, they're going to say, hey, folks, free money for everybody. Come to the Sinn Féin office in Parnell Square on Friday, and we'll give you free money. And then they're going to discover, oh, 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 we don't have any money. And they're going to have to raise taxes. They'll get elected because everybody thinks that Mary Lou and Santa Claus are in the same family. They're not. So borrowing has, all the borrowing has done, and nobody knows better than me, I stayed in business for 25 years by borrowing, right? Borrowing disguises the problem. It doesn't fix it. So I suppose we'll we'll see how that all turns out. You mentioned Churchill, and you're clearly a big admirer of him. And I'm wondering, um, because it seems okay. L- let me just first state this: in Irish politics right now, there doesn't seem to be uh, a hero who is taken on uh, the cause of uh, the resistance. Let's say to what's being done. That that voice isn't there. It also doesn't seem to be there in. RTE or News Talk or Virgin Media or The Irish Times, etc. And so I'm wondering, and maybe this is a waste of time because this is the past, but is there any Irish figure that you think could have been able to do this who could, who had the, the conviction of someone like Churchill or the whatever virtues well, you saw in, in someone like him or, or whatever? Do you know who, who, who could do this? Or, or is it that George, if George hadn't fallen foul of no. All that stuff a few years ago, would you have been, do you think no. you could have made a big difference here on, on the airwaves? No, first of all, it's a massive exaggeration to think that George could make a difference, all right? But if you look at what happened to people who, like John Waters or Kevin Myers or, or even Sean O'Rourke who went to a golf match, right? The mob, right? The mob. And the mob now sits comfortably on Twitter. So it is just waiting. Oh, the mob are now currently knitting. The guillotine has been sharpened. And they're waiting for the next person to come up in the tumbrel so they can watch his head fall in the basket, right? Now, you're a broadcaster, say, and you're working for whoever you're working for. Are you going to risk having your head chopped off by the mob? You're not. You're, you're just not. Why would you? So therefore, nobody is prepared to challenge the accepted view. Who could is was your question? It's not a broadcaster. Churchill wasn't a media figure, although he was. I mean, in terms of the amount of stuff he wrote, he was a media figure. He earned his livelihood writing. London is burning. Night after night. German bombers are coming in and bombing the city. Cities in flames. The whole population is living like rats in the underground tube stations, coming up the following morning uh, to see what damage has been done. And there's this voice. Every night or every couple of nights, as this voice comes on the radio. I can offer you nothing but blood, sweat, toil and tears 
And then after that extraordinary summer and autumn, when eventually the German bombers couldn't do it anymore, he said, never in the history of human conflict has so much been owed by so many to so few, right? And then he said, when, when, when they wanted to surrender, when Chamberlain and, and, and his foreign minister wanted to surrender, and there was 400,000 people sitting on the beaches in Dunkirk, maybe never to come home. He said, we will fight them in the beaches. We will fight them on the roads. We will fight them in the hell hills. And he said, if I have to, I will die suffocating in my own blood. Now, do you know anybody who could say that in Ireland in relation to COVID? Mial Martin should be on the television every two or three nights telling the Irish people, not some unelected fella. I've looked at every country in the European Union, every democracy, and nowhere can I find the scientific guys giving the information. Look at our nearest neighbour. You might think much of Boris or Matt Hancock or any of them, but they come to the podium flanked by the scientists, and they say, this is what we're going to do. Now, scientists have, in fact, given them wrong information, but forget all that. The point is the politicians are in control. Where is Stephen Donnelly? I mean, I'm not utterly convinced Stephen Donnelly wears a mask in Dolair and so he won't be recognised. Mm. How can you have How can you have an anonymous minister for health when the country is facing a pandemic? You would have thought, of all the jobs for a minister of health, a pandemic was time you'd expect him. Yes. Yeah. He's nowhere. And Martin is... Nowhere. I don't want Hulan telling me what to do. Who the hell is Hulan? Just a doctor. Would I go to my doctor and ask him how to fix the problem in my motor car? Would I go to my doctor and ask him how do I handle my taxes this year? Would I go to my doctor and ask him who I should vote for? No. The last person, in fact, you go to ask about anything other than medical is his doctor. So Hulan is deciding only this week, some fella called Tomas Ryan, professor of some horse manure stuff in, in Trinity College, Dublin, comes on and says, you know, if these lobby groups stopped, the whole thing would be fixed. Lobby groups. I'll tell you who lobby groups are. Lobby groups are people who don't have jobs. Lobby groups are businesses that are closed. That's what lobby groups are, who are saying, please, can I have my job? Can I have my business? That's a lobby group. And this fellow, Professor, you know, Ryan dismisses us mm. as just lobby groups. Like, I'm fine. I'm 79. doesn't matter if I die at 80 or 85. It doesn't matter anyway. I just miss a few golf games. But, like, it doesn't actually matter. But what about my children and my grandchildren? Oh, yeah. What about children who did no leaving certs and got rubbish from marks? Marks. They didn't get marks based on how they, what they achieved. They got marks based on the computer. So, George, you've heard people talk about uh, authoritarianism and and fascism in kind of relation to this what's going on and i wonder do you think that's a bit much or like maybe this is just a bit of a cock-up where michael martin maybe just is scared of i don't know doing the wrong thing and he, he would rather leave it to the experts like we're talking about or do you or do you think there's something going on here with regard to control and and power and 
and freedom of people and their movements and um i don't know is, again I, i'm stopping myself is it outrageous to say that there's an active effort to suppress religious association or is this just another victim of do you know and and so on not just the religion thing but that's that's a huge right. thing that's once upon a so. time in fact if you described yourself as an expert right people actually dismissed you because experts always were considered too smart for their own good right but let's forget that for just a moment what we see at the moment i i i'm driving and this has happened to me on three separate occasions i'm driving i'm i'm taxed i'm insured i'm wearing my seatbelt, and i'm sober so a policeman has no reason to stop me. But he stops me, and he stops everybody else, but he stops me. And he says, where are you going? I'm going home. Well, where'd you start from? Now, what we are, so, now, seriously said, we should bring the army in, right? So a bunch of kids drinking pints of stout uh, in Black Rock. The army should arrive in and take them away. Now, the last time this happened, the black and tans roamed the land in cross-lead trucks, okay? We can't go to mass. We can't go to church. We can't, we can't pray to God. And there's a lot of people in Ireland pray to God, despite what you might think. We can't pray to God and say, dear God, save us from this pandemic. We can't do that. We're not allowed to do that. It's never happened. Now, let's assume, and it's going to happen, Roughly, probably 2025 is the next election, but it could happen before that. Next election, based on the current figures, should Vayner empire. Taoiseach Mary Lou MacDonald and Minister for Justice Pierce Doherty say, well, you know, we're putting the cops on the street because we think the people of Fox Rock are going to revolt. All right? And everybody says, no, shame, shame. You can't do that. Now, hold a while, there's precedent here for putting cops on the street and stopping people's movement, right? And I'm not referring specifically to Sinn Féin, but they're going to be the next government. So therefore, what we have created, and now I'm going to get a ton of sticks, so maybe you might want to edit this out. Right? No, keep going. There's no editing, George. There's no going back here. But go on. <laughs> Hitler was elected without ever getting more than 30% of the vote. So 70% of Germans did not want him as their chancellor. 70% of Germans did not subscribe to national socialist ideology, right? The next government will probably have 35% of the vote, roughly speaking. The next, that's what the next government will do. The leading so party whatever, anyway. Maybe, what yeah. we are creating now is we are creating things that have never happened in our history, have never happened to a sense of democracy, where the police roam the street to stop law-abiding citizens for no reason, where a association, and always one of the great things was freedom of association. You cannot associate in the street anymore because we may bring the army in if you misbehave, where you cannot worship. Is that the country you want to live in? I don't think it is. It doesn't have to be a pandemic, a pandemic the next time. It can be any excuse. This is a monumental 
challenge for democracy. Absolutely monumental. It's all you have to do now. Next time around, and you want to you want to uh, break democracy and civil liberties and free speech is to cook up some other kind of pandemic. It doesn't have to be necessarily sickness. It can be something else. That's all you have to so do. So do you really, do you, do you think that this could be used as a sort of a precedent and it will be, like, do you think this is inevitable or or does this is something I have no doubt. I have no doubt. I have no doubt. I have no doubt. If you can have an unelected civil servant, and that's what Tony Houlihan is, an unelected civil servant, he can't, and he bounced the government previously. He bounced the government into lockdown. And finally, uh, you know, they appeared to have some courage. And they finally told him, take a hike. All right. Like Hulan said, he said, the car parks are full. The citizens, I'm paraphrasing, you know, but the, the inference was the citizens aren't doing their duty. The car parks are full, which is why exactly what he said. Are the car parks full? They are in my eye. I spoke to the chief executive of Dublin City Council who told me the car parks in Dublin City are empty. Some of them, in fact, are simply just closed because there's nobody. So if he can get away, if he can get away with that, sure he can get away with anything. We know that during the swine flu epidemic, he recommended, because it's in the high court, so like it's, it's in the high court, he recommended that children be given the swine flu vaccine that it was safe. The Irish Medicines Board told him it wasn't safe. And now he went on news talk and he went on RTE and he said, it is safe. Parents said, let's get our child vaccinated. Those children will never have a normal life again. They're not adults. They will never have a normal life again. And is it, did, did he say that? Well, senior counsel said it in the case in the High Court. There are 80 cases before the High Court. Before that, over 200 women, 18 of whom have died to date, had their smear tests incorrectly assessed, and they were never told. Who's chief medical officer at that time? Tony Hula. At that time, the, the TD for Sinn Féin, uh, Colnan, and the leader of the Labour Party, although he may not have been at that time, called for his resignation. So, like, we, we, why is nobody asking the question? I mean, the essence of democracy is debate. So, George, and, ideally, yeah, go on. Well, what makes us different from Russia, what makes us different from Russia is we can hold a different opinion. Yes. I don't actually expect after this some fella to come around the corner with a poisoned umbrella and stick it in my butt. I yes. don't actually expect that. No. And that's what makes us this country. That's what gives us freedom of speech. So, George, I do. Yeah. Say no, it again. We don't, have- we don't have it. So, ideally, this conversation could be had with between two people who disagree, right? And we can maybe try and come to a shared understanding. And what seems to be happening is that there's a conversation in, uh, let's say, in the mainstream, and then there's another conversation outside of that. And I think that's a big uh, 
challenge and a big limitation to this idea of the public square. So, so how do you see how do you see that uh, challenge being risen to? Like, like, and I'll give you an example. Let me give you a quote here, and it's a quote of you, and it was from an article you mentioned John Waters earlier, and I've an article here that uh, he wrote about you in 2014, and you wanted to be reinv- you sorry hold on a second why do we in radio think that 10 years from now people are going to be consuming radio the same way as they are now so and then this is another quote you said so i am going to deliver between now and the day i go what i believe is the radio of the next generation so you seem to be actually onto a changing of 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 the ways of doing things and i'm just wondering uh, what kind of vision did you have and, and what kind of vision do you have now about what might be possible and what might be necessary uh, to, to kind of come to grips with all of this stuff? Well, we, you see, I don't know. I wish I did. But like, we know voices have been stilled. One of the greatest current affairs journalists Georgie ever had got sacked because he went to a golf match. We, we look at Martin Feely, director of the Midlands General Hospital Group, dared to write on the Irish Times that maybe this wasn't as dangerous as it was made out. Following day, sacked. Now, he was dressed up as he resigned, but he was sacked. You know, the only difference between him and General Rommel was they didn't actually hand him a gun and tell him blow his brains out. So the thing is, every opinion that is different silence every opinion so like if 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 it's wrong to go to a golf match and you apologize is that okay well we've just seen some of the biggest broadcasters in rte break all the regulations and apologize so it's okay it's okay no sanction they don't lose a day's work they they don't lose a day's screen or radio time because they apologized. So whose apology is good enough and whose apology isn't? The apologies that aren't good enough are the people they want to silence. So at the moment, there is no contrary view. Now, contrary view could be wrong. This is the whole point. I'm not right. I'm not even saying I get you. No, I get you. Everything I could have said to you in this conversation could have been horse manure but I am entitled to say it. Mm-hmm. Let me tell you, I'm about I'm seven years of age. It's 1948. And my father takes me to London to see our cousins. And we don't have any clothes in the suitcase. We just have rashers and sausages and sweets. Because there's rationing in London, right? And so we bring this for our, our cousins. And then he brings me on the Sunday morning to Hyde Park Corner. And this seven-year-old who adores his father is holding his father's hand. There's all these guys up on soapboxes like shoot the Pope and let's have communism and all sorts of stuff, right? And my father says to me, he said, look here, son, he said, all these people can say the worst things possible, but they're allowed to say them. And he said, that is what free speech meant. And if you t- if he had said to me at seven, if he had said to me then, you know, the Jews were the Christ killers and you should burn down the nearest synagogue, I would have been a lifetime anti-Semite. But he didn't. He told me about he told me about um 
uh, free speech. So, like, I believe in free speech with an unbelievable passion. I have a greater passion for free speech than I have for rugby union. Yes, and that's saying something, George. Well, look, I want to do two things. I have one final question for you. But before that, if I may, I want to read you some comments on the YouTube because uh, I had a quick glance at them and they were overwhelmingly uh, fond, fondly kind of uh, referring to you. So just if you might have something to say, but a couple of things, you know, just that you might like to hear. Hi, George. This is from Chelsea Joyce. Hi, George. I missed the right hook and Michael Graham. Hiya, James and George, the truth teller. That's from Fiona Murphy. Fanula Murphy, sorry. And then she said, I heard a great interview over on the Irish Inquiry this afternoon. Absolutely brilliant from George. He's quite right about the coaching for kids. I was hopeless at maths and poorly at some other subjects, but great at crafts and sewing and art, but was poo-pooed by my folks, etc. So just did office work. She was a great organizer. God bless her. Let me just find uh, one more thing and then let's round off with this. That's uh, George. Jeez, there's some stuff here that I, I can't... Uh... You can't say okay. that. <laughs> George, let me give you one good one again. You have a duty to get back to tell the masses. So maybe maybe there's, maybe there's you can be convinced. But anyway, let me I just ask say you... About, sorry, yes. about coming back. Okay? Yes. Um, because every so often when I do something like this, I, I because I'm, I'm frail and I have weakness, you know, I start thinking, you know, maybe I should do this, you know. But uh, the thing really is, I think there is a program for old age pensioners. In other words, that I don't, someone like me, could be anybody, but someone like me, doesn't talk to 40-year-olds or 30-year-olds or 20-year-olds. There is an enormous, there are more old people in Ireland now, obviously we know this, than ever before. And there's going to be more old people every year that goes by. So there is no radio programme or or television, but particularly radio, that aims at that demographic. So like, what are the tax problems for that age group? Or how do you survive on a low pension? Or, you know, how do I how do I give my house to my kids? Or I don't know. All that, there, yeah. is, there is a case for that kind of program, I think, you know? So George, maybe maybe you can do that. Let me just say that maybe you could get in touch with uh, Mary Louise O'Donnell. She's quite vocal on how we can serve the elderly in our uh, society a bit better. And she's really in tune to that plight, maybe. And I don't know if that means anything uh, and if you could collaborate on that. But anyway, let me just read you a, a quote again from this article about you and ask you a question. And, and we'll leave it at that uh, if, if that's OK. Um, and I very much appreciate you giving me all this time this evening. Uh, but you said, like, I believe that somebody somewhere has set me a challenge in my life. They've given me all these skills and I have to make the best of these skills that they've given to me, or otherwise I'm like the prodigal son, you know? So George, I'm wondering, do you think you have risen to the challenge uh, in a way that has been uh, satisfactory overall? Yeah, well, I, what I say to people always when I, when I went to, for an interview in the past or I met a new chief executive at Newstalk or, or producer or D, I used to say to them, in order to understand me, 
you would have had to meet, have met my mother, right? So the first thing is my mother could talk for Ireland. Like she could just talk. So I got that. And where I went wrong in my life was I had these skills. I, I had the ability to speak. I'm not trying to be big-headed here, but it's a fact that I loved speech. I mean, I adored speech. Like, I was a debater. I read all Churchill's speeches. I could recite them verbatim or Robert Emmett's speech from the dock, you know, all that sort of stuff. Um, De Valera's response to, to Winston Churchill, all that sort of stuff. And um, I... But I was doing the wrong job, like I was I was in business. I should never have been in business, you know. And then suddenly I get this break. Now I do a lot of stuff with young people. Like I, I work with transition here, for instance, in my old school in Cork, Press Corp. And the key point I keep saying to them is everybody is lucky. The problem is there's a ton of people out there who wouldn't recognize luck if it slapped them in the face. So therefore what you have to do is you have to think that today could be my lucky day. So I better do my best. So even though I was making a mess of my life for 25 years or more, I did my best every day. So when I got this lucky break in South Africa in the World Cup and RG asked me to do two minutes with Fred Cogley by the pool in Johannesburg, I gave it my very best. Now, I didn't realize I might get a job at 25 quid out of it, but I gave it my best. I want to say is you've got to give it your best. So every time I, I came off the radio or television or whatever, I said, was that my very best? Now, I ever watched myself or listened to myself, but I always said, was that my very best? Because if it isn't my very best, I'm cheating myself. So I think that's the thing that made me survive. I mean, that, because I think I would have ended it in Dunleary. I, I don't know why I didn't dive in, you know, but like, I'm so glad I didn't because it was all this stuff waiting for me, all this fabulous stuff. And I adored it. I mean, like I, if people say, this is a great phrase, you know, that if you love your work, You've never, you never work, or words to that effect. But I never worked. Like for, for 20 years, I never worked. I just adored it. I mean, I adored it. And I think because I started late, if I'd started earlier, like I would have been wanted to be correct because I wouldn't want to lose the job. But if somebody gives you a job at 55, you don't think you'll have it for a year. So you think, sure, if I lose it, what's so what? So that gave me a lot of confidence and freedom that I otherwise might not have had. Listen, you haven't got a word in anyway, so I think the next time we do this, I'll have to interview you. Well, mate, I have nothing to say, George. I'm I'm a, a rookie, and uh, this is why Very I talk to people like I you. No, I I think this is wonderful, and. Uh, I am very, I really appreciate this. I won't actually see you, George, for a while because I'm in America and with all the traveling and everything, I probably won't be home for a while, but maybe we can have a cup of tea or something. Uh, you can put on the kettle. I'll, I'll give you a ring, you know, and uh, and you answered the phone very quickly the other day. So so I'll, I'll ring you again. And, oh, and yeah, yeah. I answer the phone and I don't drink tea. Um, so okay. As long as, as long as I can drink black coffee, I'm up to, okay. I'm ready to go. 
Good stuff. Well, George, thanks a million. I'm going to stop the recording and we'll just, we won't say anything for a minute because it takes a few seconds. Um, But anyway, I would just ask if anyone is watching and enjoyed George's sentiments, uh, please uh, do us a favor and share this video. He clearly is full of life and full of energy and his message I think is worth, whether it's worth uh, signing up and in agreement, it's definitely worth hearing. So why don't you uh, spread that with the world? Thanks a million. Sloan Thomas. See you next week. You are listening to the Logos broadcast with Fergus James Murphy.